My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Karen Hardwick. Karen is the host of Saving You a Seat podcast, author of the Connected Leader, Seven Strategies to Empower Your True Self and Inspire Others. She is also a psychotherapist turned leadership consultant with a Master's of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary. Blending psychology and spirituality with leadership, she has transformed the lives of countless 400 1,000 leaders at work and home. Her book, The Connected Leader, shows us humans how to grow emotionally and spiritually using her seven strategies of connection to become our best selves as parents, spouses, and leaders at work. So I want to say thank you, Karen, for, for joining me today, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Good to be here, Dave. Me too. Um, I, I'd like to start off with some of your your history, your background. Uh, I read a little bit about how you had to grow up pretty fast when your mother became ill when you were when you were ten years old. And uh, I I read that you've got two siblings, younger siblings, and you pretty much had to figure things out on your own as as you dealt with everything that comes with having a, uh, a pretty ill parent. So I was wondering if you you could talk a little bit about your your childhood, um, growing up in those conditions and, and how that maybe shaped your life moving forward. Um, boy, you really do believe in diving in <laughs> deeply, right? Um, those early years, Dave, were incredibly, incredibly impactful to me, um, who at the age of 10 wants to live the life of an adult, but that's what I was asked to do. Um, my mom was terminally ill and was so for a really long time, and I didn't know any difference. My desire to help and to do as much as I possibly could for her really started things in motion that while they might've been a coping mechanism back in my childhood, and this is true for all of us humans, um, it caught up to me in my adult life. In other words, I learned through no fault of anyone's other than the circumstances we were in that it was my job to rescue and to fix and to be cheerful not to have my feelings get in the way because there was a bigger mission here and that was to make sure mom was healthy and okay and alive and I took that mantle on Dave with all the gusto and grief that 
could actually do this as a 10 year old and then as a 12 year old. And so it went on for a long time. It went on about eight years. So it was, it was a lot now that I look back on it. Um, it didn't seem like a lot at the time though. It just seemed like regular life. And so you were about 18 years old. You, I'm guessing that's about when your mom passed. Is that? She, yeah, she actually, my math is wrong. Numbers are not my strong point. Um, but she, she died when I was 20. Okay. And yeah, well, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. I, I, I lost my mother as well. Um, it, I was a little bit older, but you know, there is, there are some parallels to uh, your upbringing in mind. So I, I kind of understand a, a little bit. Um, but when, when you're, you were growing up developing these, these beliefs and, and this mindset that you are the protector, you're the provider, you're the one that is taking care of everything. It's, it's also developing you in, in a way for, for leadership. And, and I'm sure as, as I did, I made a lot of mistakes growing up and, um, and then and in, in my adult years, um, relationships, all, all that stuff. And I, I am curious, what led you, well, first, what came first, the seminary or the, the psychology or psychotherapy portion? I went to seminary right out of college. So seminary came first and I got my MDiv um, at Princeton Theological. Decided not to be ordained as an Episcopal priest. Realized while I was in seminary that um, I didn't want to work on Sundays and that the church for me was a really important part of my life. And that was one of the cornerstones of our growing up years. It was, it was a safe haven. It was the community. It was the source of connection. My mother was a devout Episcopalian and a faithful believer in Jesus. Um, so it made sense for me to go to seminary in many ways. My cousin was at Harvard while I was um, down at Princeton. So it was very cool to have such a dear family member going through the same process that I was going through. John went on to be ordained, I chose not to. And while I was in seminary, I learned that Dave really what I was feeling called to do was sit with people and listen to their stories. It was a great way for me to get clarity about mine. So when I was in seminary, I also went into therapy for the very first time. So that was eye-opening and awakening. And I learned to start putting the pieces together of my family system and what that meant and the impact on me. So the puzzle pieces started to fit. And as they started to fit, I got clarity about, I wanna do this. I want to help people hold their stories lightly with self-compassion 
I want people to move through the really tough fires and gain some sense of their own resilience. And I wanna help people understand that we all have dark sides, we all have shadowy pieces to ourselves and that we can come into the light with grace and redemption and lead ourselves and connect more deeply to other people as a result. I'm curious in, in your personal journey, at what point did you come to the realization that, that you had to give yourself some grace? Oh, wow, that's a great question. Uh, it wasn't until much later, actually. What I was working on when I was a, you know, a graduate student in my 20s um, was more about a cognitive understanding that what happened, happened, and it had an impact on everybody in the family and we all had a role to play and we all played that to the best of our ability and that we have to learn how to put those roles down so that we can move into our adult life as free as possible from that. So I understood the concepts and I understood very much so having been a recipient of and also a giver of what forgiveness is really how, how you really experience forgiveness. I have to say that it really wasn't until later in my life that I truly understood the power of grace, that it's completely unearned. It's not related to anything we do. It's because we, in my, in my experience, it's because we are beloved by God. And I think as we live and as we make mistakes and as we realize no matter where we go to school or what our upbringing was like or what our level of success is like in our adult life, we are human beings having a very messy time of it down here. And grace for me become, has become this concept of how I tether myself to the idea that we are all doing the very best we can. Sometimes it's not good enough. We make mistakes, we do harm to other people, but how do we learn from that? We do harm to ourselves. How are we gonna give ourselves the permission to change the scripts we've been living out of? So I think grace for me is this ongoing learning process, Dave. I would agree with that 100%. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's, <laughs> I have to remind myself of it every day. Yeah. Now, I, I'm, I'm curious, after you finished with the seminary, did you immediately go into uh, uh, becoming a psychotherapist? So I was really fortunate in that Princeton had a reciprocal program with Rutgers Graduate School of Social Work. So I could go immediately there, get the courses I needed from a clinical perspective and finish up as soon as I could. So that's what I did. It was a dual degree program. Now, 
would that have given you like a licensed clinical social worker type thing or exactly yeah exactly okay. and then as when that was done and i was through with school long time in school um i started working in the hiv and aids world so that's kind of where i was forged by fire um and had a clinical practice on the side and practiced as a psychotherapist for a number of years. And then from there, like, can you, can you tell me a little bit about the transition into um, really developing leaders? And it, it seems like that's really what you have a passion for. Yeah, I do. And I do believe, Dave, that we, that leaders are anyone who have people entrusted to their care. So in, in my book, The Connected Leader, I, I do expand the moniker of leader, love leaders, believing that, again, parents can be a leader. Teenagers can be leaders. Children can be leaders. Leaders are not just found in the halls of corporations and organizations, right? They're not just in the military. Leaders are anybody who has people entrusted to their care and who can help those people soar into being their most true self. So I do have a passion for leadership and I do believe that stay-at-home parents are leaders. And so the whole idea of leadership is about helping those of us with people entrusted to our care be the very best we can be so we can inspire others to truly soar. In your book, you, you talk a lot about connection and that being really the, um, the, the foundation for, for good leadership. Can, can we talk a little bit about, quote unquote, the connection? Sure. So as I know you know, we are wired neurologically to connect. Our brains crave connection the same way our, bra our brains crave water, food, protection. The challenge for us human beings is to learn how to connect in ways that are healthy and that nourish our souls and help us to be relationally healthy and emotionally strong. How to do that in a world that oftentimes teaches us to connect in unhealthy ways. So addiction is at the highest it's ever been. Depression, anxiety is upticking on a daily basis. We are living in a world where stress and burnout and bore out, bored out and restlessness are all just nipping at our heels constantly. And people are looking for all kinds of ways to connect and some of those ways are unhealthy. So I invite people to figure out how to connect in really healthy ways. And I don't think we can connect to people in really healthy ways, Dave, until we learn to connect to ourselves in really honest ways, where we learn to accept the power of our stories where we find the treasure in our stories, the wisdom in our stories. We learn to rise up with resilience. 
we learn um, that we're forged by fire. But what does that mean? And how do we share that wisdom with other people? So connection for me, in terms of leadership, is where it's really at. Because that's when we get to create the really safe, uh, psychologically safe places for our people. So they too can soar and be inspired and find the empowerment deep within them. So you just said something that we've got to learn how to connect deeply with ourselves and our truth. And can, can you talk a little bit about that and how you would first go about doing that? So it's different for everybody. Um, there are some best practices, if you will, that are incredibly helpful. So what does it mean to connect with ourselves? And when I take people on this journey, and when I look at my own ongoing journey, what I do know to be true is we have to have courage to do the work. To do the work on ourselves is the most courageous work there is to do. And we can only do it if we're willing to be honest about what has happened, what did we go through, what did we learn, and how are we behaving? What is the impact our behavior is currently having on ourselves and on other people? So it means a surrendering to humility. Deciding that I don't have to try and focus on what I'm doing all the time. That the real challenge and invitation for leaders is to focus on being. Who am I fully human, empathetic, curious, deeply honest about who I am? Who am I when I'm doing those things? So there's ways to do this, right? I mean, there's practices like therapy. There's practices like clinical coaching with somebody who has a clinical background. There's wonderful spiritual direction that can help us dive deep into who we are. There's wonderful assessments like the Enneagram. It's, it's my favorite one at this point to use with leaders and to use with anybody who's really interested in going on this journey. So I think when we connect to ourselves, it's about learning as much as we possibly can. Masks off, persona aside, and who are we when we're sitting with ourselves? It's hard. It's hard work. I'm, I wanna to touch on something real quick that well, it, it's, it's very noticeable to me, the way that you speak about these things, it's all inclusive. And I think that a lot of times people that are struggling with their past or, you know, trauma that they've been through, they feel like, you know, they're, they're the only ones, they're on an island, and that nobody could possibly understand what they've been through when 
and and I don't know the statistics, but I want to say that somewhere in the ACEs literature, there is a, a statistic that says it's a really high percentage of all of us that that endure some form of trauma, adverse, well, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. Um, and realizing how those experiences have shaped who we are and how we build relationships with other people, sometimes just, it, it, it takes a little bit for people to make that connection, especially individuals that shy away from therapy or, or any kind of um, head shrinking, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I was wondering, when, when you are uh, talking with this inclusivity, are, are you aware of a, a statistic or is it just in your experience, everybody's got some baggage and that's just a fact? I think everybody has some baggage. Um, it all this, the numbers will depend on how we define trauma. So there's conversation around trauma with a big T and trauma with a little t. So trauma with a big T are the really egregious kinds of trauma. If you can say that one trauma is worse than another, we're talking about things like PTSD from war. We're talking about rape. We're talking about you know, the kinds of poverty that is mixed with violence, big, big trauma. And then there's trauma with a little t. The kinds of trauma that can still eat away at someone's sense of well-being and safety. It could be addiction. It could be um, some type of verbal or emotional abuse in the home. It could be bullying at school. It could be a tremendous loss, the death of a loved one. We all have something that shakes us to the core. Some people have a whole lot more, boatloads of it. Some people, it seems like they have a very small dose of anything that smacks of trauma, loss, pain. And I do, I do invite people, Dave, very much so not to live in the pain and not to go looking for it, but to be conscious of it because what we resist persists. And what we don't own, what we're not willing to look at, I tell you, is down in the basement working out with weights and getting stronger. 
So anything that we can raise to a, a conscious level and accept it lovingly with a lot of self-compassion, the chances are, as we do that, we will live happier, freer, more joyous lives. I think that kind of leads us into your your seven strategies um, where, well, first, the one is connecting consciously, but not, and I think you mean not just connecting with the people that you're leading, but connecting with yourself to in order to better connect with those people that you're leading. Yeah, you know, I think connecting consciously becomes a lifestyle. And, and nobody does this perfectly. Every day it's about progress, it's about growth, it's about mindfulness. It's certainly not about perfection. I mean, sometimes by the time 8 a.m. rolls around, I've already made mistakes. I already want to start the day over. So this is not about perfection. It's about being conscious and in the moment and aware. So con connecting consciously is about a lifestyle. How can I grow my relationship with myself? And as I do that, how do I come more into contact with a spiritual practice that is meaningful for me? Everyone has a different sense of what that is. And with those two tools, connecting with self and connecting with a spiritual practice, my ability to connect in healthy ways with others is significantly increased. And we need that in the workplace so very much because I often say we're not leaders having a leadership crisis. We are leaders having a human being crisis. And we can't MBA our way into leadership anymore. Well, one of the things that really struck me in the, well, the second strategy, uh, listening deeply. So when, when I'm teaching leadership, I talk about the foundation of, of all good leadership is communication. And you find that the best communicators listen twice as much as they're talking. So, and, and when you're communicating, you're connecting. So I, I feel like we're on the same page, just maybe approaching it with different terminology. <laughs> uh, semantics. No, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I really, really appreciate that, Dave. I think we are on the same page. It seems like you come at leadership from a very mindful, thoughtful, approach. I can see it in you and I can feel it in you. Well, I'd like to maybe dig in to, to that strategy on, on, on your end, how you help people. Because I think a lot of times, and, th and this is in my personal experience, where I've worked for countless people that never wanted to hear what I had to say. And it was, they wanted to have that authority and tell me what I was supposed to think and what I was supposed to do and how I was supposed to approach this, that, and the other thing. And it was extremely frustrating. And I learned very early on in my career that that was not the kind of leader that I wanted to be. And if you 
I mean, you can look throughout history. I mean, even back to like the, the Stoic philosophers that they tell you, you know, you have two ears and one mouth, therefore you should listen twice as much as you speak. And um, how, how do you coach somebody to be a better listener? Mm. So I think all things start, Dave, with ourselves. So in order to be a good enough listener, is someone able to listen to themselves? So remember that connection starts with ourself. And so all the seven strategies that I have seen in my work with leaders and that I have seen in my life really become effective, start with self. I can't listen to anyone else, Dave, in a way that feels safe to them, that feels like I can really see them and hear them if I'm not willing to be quiet. And quietness starts within us. I have to be comfortable with silence. I have to be comfortable with what's gonna come up in that silence. And when I talk about these things, you know, Lord have mercy, it's not, doesn't mean that I do these perfectly any stretch of the imagination, but I'm aware of how I wanna show up. And I'm aware that this is the goal. And that I'm aware that when someone does this, it's magic. So listening means setting the table for silence and space. And I love what you said about how frustrating it was for you when people you were working for thought they had to be talking all the time. And I think people talk for a number of reasons. When I'm talking too much in, in my parenting, for instance, it's because I'm anxious. Like if I don't direct this and grab the bull by the horn and make sure what's being done is what I know needs to be done. If I'm not doing that, then what's gonna happen? So sometimes we're talking out of our own anxiety, out of our desire to show authority, out of our desire to be in control. So I like to ask my leaders, why are you talking? What are you trying to accomplish when you're talking? You go on to talk about exhibiting empathy. And this is another factor where, uh, and I'm sure you're aware of the research around emotional intelligence and, and one of the things, so, you know, I come from the fire service. I, and one of the things that I found early on and very early in my career, I, I exhibited some, you know, ignorant, misogynistic behavior and thoughts and words. And I had a very good friend of mine who was a, a female firefighter that 
you know, let me go with those thoughts. And I was just like, in my mind, my, you know, of all my 20 something years of wisdom, you know, thought, well, you know, well, she's the exception, of course, you know, she's, and well, one day she, she pulled me to the side and tuned me up pretty good. And, and it was in such a way that I, I realized how ignorant I had been. And I worked very hard at overcoming that ignorance and being a better human being. Um, but it took me a long time in that atmosphere, in that environment to really have the courage to speak up. And when I did speak up, I came armed with a lot of information, a lot of facts and a lot of research where, you know, the best leaders have high levels of emotional intelligence. And when you look at how emotional intelligence is measured, there are quite a few factors, you know, good communication skills, um, being empathetic, uh, good at building and maintaining good relationships. And all those three things are some of the most important factors of leadership. And women tend to score you know, quite a bit higher than men in those areas. And it's just interesting to me that in male dominated organizations, namely, well, from my experience, the fire service, there is, um, and, and you can see this across the country, I, I've trained all over the United States and you talk to the firefighters and the officers and everybody has a story about how, and excuse my language, but how shitty the leadership is in their department. And it just seems like a self-perpetuating culture where, you know, they don't embrace the value of women the way they should. And therefore like kind of keep th those those skills, you know, out in the distance and tend to view them as being weak. But when you look at the leaders that people really value and aspire to be like, they have those skills. <laughs> yeah, they do. So, yeah, they do. In, in your experience and in, in your research and in, in your book, how do you describe empathy and and how do you help someone develop that ability to be empathetic? First of all, thank you for sharing that part of your journey because you're describing doing the work. You really are, Dave. I mean, there's you're telling a story about something you did, thought, believed that leaked out into your behaviors and that you were willing to do the hard work of change. Um, and I think, I, I think that's just really important, those stories to share. So thank you for sharing that. 
In terms of empathy, there's a couple of things. When I talk about the seven connection creators, those strategies, they're not soft skills. This is not about kumbaya. We are not turning workplaces into summer camps and sorority houses and you know, we're just not. We still have to deliver shareholder value. We still have to attract and develop and retain amazing talent. We have to nail the numbers. We have processes and operations that have to be efficiently executed. So just because I come to leadership from a spiritual and psychological perspective does not mean I'm soft. And that's where real empathy comes in. Empathy is the ability to stand in someone else's shoes without excusing their behavior. So for instance, I can have tremendous empathy. I'm in recovery and have been for a long time. And I have tremendous empathy, obviously, for people who are suffering from the disease of addiction. And that doesn't mean that I excuse their behavior. And in the workplace, I'm sorry, Dave, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of people get that piece wrong, that by being empathetic, you're excusing them. Just because you can put yourself in their shoes and understand the place that they're in doesn't mean that you're giving them a pass to be that way. I couldn't have said it better myself. Amen a thousand times over. And I wrote an article for Forbes about how we have moved empathy into this buzzword. Everybody needs to be empathetic. Everybody needs to be vulnerable. And we don't know what the words mean from a behavioral perspective. We're just throwing them around. Boundaries and accountability has to ride shotgun with empathy. Otherwise, we have mech empathy, like drive-through empathy, a quick fix, everybody feels good. And we don't, we don't have anything to show for it. Real empathy is transformational because it gives people the sense that they're heard and seen and understood. But as your friend did, like, I see you, Dave, and I'm really with you. I'm your friend, but I also want to call you out on what I'm hoping you can change. It was a lot softer than she put it, but. <laughs> well, you know, I'm from New Jersey, so I have a few choice words I could use too, but I'm not going to do that here. Um, so. Again, with all of the connection strategies, Dave, it's so important that they begin with ourselves. Same is true for empathy. We cannot give what we don't give ourselves. So we have to show ourselves empathy. This is where grace comes in. We have to hold our mistakes lightly and also move toward change, healthy growth. We have to show ourselves compassion and understanding. And when we, the people who are most empathetic in a healthy way, so they also have boundaries, are those who know how to be self-compassionate. I, I couldn't help but notice how 
as you're going through these these strategies or these steps towards connection one just kind of naturally leads into the other and like so from empathy you go into curiosity and so maybe take me take me through the next several steps in your in your strategy for connecting with others Thank you for noticing that because I talk about that in the book and I use the Aspen groves as an example of what true connection is. Aspens grow in these groves and they have an interconnected root system. It's all one tree. And that's what I wanted to build on with these connection creating strategies. Once you're able to listen deeply you become more empathetic toward yourself and others because you're comfortable with silence and you know how to listen to both yourself and to those around you. Once you're empathetic, you also know it's okay to be curious. I don't have to know everything. I can gently ask someone else questions that help them open up, not that pushes them back on their heels. We don't want to ask questions in a way when we're building connection that makes people feel like they're on the witness stand. So we're not questioning people. We're asking questions that help them to open up because we care about them. And because the other part about curiosity is we don't have to know everything, right? I don't know about you, but the more I live, the less I know. And I am really getting comfortable with saying, uh, I don't have a friggin' clue. We will just figure this out somehow, whether it be personally or professionally, we will figure this out. So curiosity means that we are also humble, that we have stepped into that beautiful place of humility where we know our gifts, we know where we're strong, but we're also able to say, I don't know everything. I'm making myself open and available to others and to learning. So curiosity is very empowering to the people around us. Not that I can empower anybody. People make a mistake about that word. I can't empower anyone, but I can create the environment that allows people to empower themselves. And we do that by being empathetic, by being curious, by doing the other strategies that you're leading me to talk to, helping people to know that we can navigate chaos comfortably. And it's all chaos. If the last two years have taught us nothing, they have certainly taught us that it's all chaos and we control literally nothing other than our responses to what goes on around us. And people wanna know that their leaders, whether they be their leaders at home or their leaders at work, that leaders are comfortable with uncertainty and chaos and not knowing that they can lead us through those times when it really does feel like the water's coming into the boat faster than we can get it out. Right? Yep. 
And the other, another very important strategy to this whole connection business is developing what I call courage-based confidence. So we're a society that tells us it's all about the outside accolades, right? Where did you go to school? How many trophies do you have? How much money do you make? Is your book a bestseller? All of those outside accolades. And that's how we develop confidence. That's how we learn that we're good at what we do. And it's important to have the kind of confidence that allows us to show up and know that we are good at what we do. But there's another kind of confidence that for connected leaders is more important. And that is the confidence that comes from knowing I have been through some really tough stuff. I know what I'm made of, I'm resilient, and I can do what is needed to be done from an emotional and spiritual and relational perspective. I can have that tough conversation. I can say goodbye to a circumstance that is abusive or toxic. I can go into the boardroom and deliver poor results and tell the board that I have a path forward. I can do hard things because I've done hard things in the past and I'm courageous and confident as a result. I mean, as a firefighter, I am sure you have that kind of confidence. I mean, how in the world do you all run into a building that's burning? Where does that come from? Something deep within you. I, I, I think you made the connection already. It's that you, you don't just start off on day one running into burning buildings. You, you, <laughs> you, you build up to that. You learn that you can survive and you learn how to use the equipment, the tools that are given to you in a way that maximizes your chances of surviving, you know, diving into that burning building. Um, you know, and, and really the, the purpose behind it is, I think, a lot of what, what drives most men and women that I know that are in the fire service. It's, it's the opportunity to give of yourself to help somebody else. And I think that that is one of the... Uh, the most important factors of good leadership is having that kind of mindset. It really is about serving others, isn't it? Yeah. Truly, truly is. Which I believe you, you talk about. <laughs> I do. I do. Um, I believe we're all here for a very specific purpose. And it's part of being in human school to figure out what our purpose is. And I do believe that we are all called to serve others at home, in the workplace. Some people have bigger platforms for that. Everything that we do, even in the most ordinary moments of stirring the oatmeal 
or walking the dog or changing the diaper is so meaningful. And if we can just hold on to how we serve and who we're truly serving at the end of the day, it can make all the ordinary messiness and sometimes traumatic stress seem just a little bit more purposeful. Um, my nephew was here visiting a couple of months ago and he said to me, um, you know, Aunt Karen, I really don't know how in the world you have navigated what you've navigated and are still smiling and serving dinner to people. And I've come to know, Dave, that when I'm smiling and serving dinner to people, it's, it's as authentic as it could possibly be. Maybe in my 20s to cover up my pain, I was smiling when I didn't feel like smiling. Those days are behind me. I'm trying to be a more, much more authentic and genuine through every season of my life. To your point, it's because of what we go through that we develop the tools and the resources. We know how to pull from those pieces of strength deep inside of us so that we can show up and we can help other people and we can use whatever it is that we've been through in ways that are helpful to others and to muster the courage that we need when we are called, if we are called, to go into the burning building. I knew this was gonna be a good conversation, but this is just really, it, um, it uh, very moving, um, very, very meaningful. I, I, I really enjoyed talking about your book and, um, and, and your experiences and really seeing how you've gone from where you were to where you're at now and how you've been able to use your past traumas as, well, I, I think as a way to be able to connect and empathize with others and that I just, I think that leaders, it doesn't matter the organization or what have you, if, if they can harness that, gosh, the, the world would be so much better. <laughs> Isn't that true? I mean, if, if we were teaching in our schools and in our graduate schools and in our business schools, um, the gifts of emotional intelligence, if we were asking leaders in government and nonprofits and our religious communities and corporations to do the hard work of their inside work, their inside work. I don't think we would be suffering as much as a culture because we are suffering terribly right now. There's, our culture has that big T, that big trauma on it right now. I really liked the analogy of the, the aspen tree. I, 
So my, my brother, he lives in Colorado and whenever I go out and visit, you know, we go hiking and stuff and, and just the Aspens are so beautiful. And to have that knowledge that they're all one organism because of that connection in the root system, it always reminds me of Marcus Aurelius and him talking about the beehive and and how we are all connected. All humans are connected, past, present, and future. We're all connected. We're all here to play a part. And without us, without me playing my part, without you playing your part, it would shift things in a negative way. We've all got to show up and, and play our role. Yeah, even our conversation today is not random. Everything I believe happens for a reason. And those aspen trees teach us so much because they're the only tree that can withstand fire. They pull on each other and most of the time they are not as vulnerable to the wildfires like other trees are. They pull from that same root system. So I think there's just so much we can learn from nature about the power of connection and oneness and how we pull from our roots. Beautifully said. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for allowing me to have this opportunity this has been great. I, I actually, I'm, I would love to stay in touch with you and, and I'd love to come on your show. I, I think Perfect. that, and there is so much more that we could talk about. And, and so I think that maybe in the future, if you'd be up to it coming on again, so we can go a little bit deeper. I would love that, Dave. I'm looking forward to reading your book very much. Love to have you on our show, Saving You a Seat, um, and to continue this conversation in any way that makes sense, because I've really, really enjoyed this. You know, every now and then you have a conversation, that, and in my line of work, it's more than every now and then. It's on a daily basis where you're like, that was awesome. That was worth the price of admission. Like this happened today for such an amazing reason and it made my day. It, so thank you. It made mine as well. Thank you. And before we go, for all those listening that, that want to connect with you, want to buy your book, um, how, how best would they connect with you and, and what's the best place to, to get a copy of your book? Um, my website is karenjhardwick.com and on there you can find out everything that you need to know in terms of social media. Um, I'm on Instagram, I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn, and the book is available wherever books are sold. We have a page called connectedleaderbook.com and that will give a lot of information and also point people to online retailers. So that's where they can find us. 
and and also there is uh, a link to your podcast on your website as well. So I will yes. have I will have that in the show notes. So thank you again. This was fantastic. Thank you, Dave. It really was wonderful for me too. Appreciate it very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.